Well, we're in the midst in a, we're in the midst of a series on a call to compassion. And we've been talking about how God has such a wonderful, compassionate heart uh, for us. And this is the fourth and final installment in this series. And I met Tom Jensen just a month or so ago, and uh, I was introduced to him, and we had a chance to sit down, and he told me his story uh, of compassion, how God had developed compassion and cultivated a huge compassionate heart in his life. And it was just so inspiring. He uh, served at Willow Creek on staff there for 22 years. Now he's on staff at Harvest Bible Chapel in Naperville. And just such a godly, humble man. And uh, I just thought, Tom, you got to come share uh, your story uh, with us. He also uh, taught our Love Style workshops. Some of you went to that and enjoyed uh, his uh, presentation there and helping you understand uh, those people that you love better. So let's welcome Tom uh, to Springbrook. Well, thanks so much, Dan, and thank you, everybody, for such a warm welcome here in a warm church. I really uh, already know several things about you, um, and I've just gotten to know you, and I just, I just love getting to know uh, new churches and new Christians and, and the ga- people gathering. Um, the whole Thanksgiving compassion thing that you do, the, the sailor deal that you did. How many, how many did the sailor thing out here? Okay, quite a few here. Um, that you are a singing church. You know, there aren't really many good singing churches, but you are. Got, and I'm not just saying that. I was sitting here and really taking it in. You know how to sing. Keep doing that. And, and, and then praying. By the way, of the three services, you win the prize for coming up, the most people praying. And that's, that's actually a, that's you're to be commended for that. Um, you, you've talked. Sometimes we lose this, but, you know. You're worshiping the one and only true God of the whole universe. And in the midst of that, you come and gather with some people and pray. Let's take that in. Sometimes we kind of miss the significance of what that's about. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. And and, uh, thank you, Pastor Dan, for the series that you're in, the compassion series on being compassionate for the hurting the hopeless and the hungry, so far you've studied that and gone over that. Um, and uh, the, the, you guys are going to you know, miss the, the beginning of the Bears game, and hopefully this is more than being compassionate about them, hurting, hungry, hopeless. Uh, it's just, you know, just a little, had to slip that in there for the Bears, um, the way things have been going lately. But no, this is about things much more serious than that, and my attempt here is to bring to you a story of uh, my walk for several decades of God leading me in this very important area of Christian living that isn't talked about a whole lot, of compassion. To, to kind of set us up for it, I want to give you my definition. It's pretty much clo- pretty close to the dictionary definition of compassion. Yeah, you should have these little note pages or they're up, it'll be up here on the screen as well. <clears throat> but let's think about what is compassion and uh, the literal definition of sympathetic consciousness of others' distress the distress of others, and together with that, a heartfelt desire to alleviate it, the distress. 
Now, the first part of that definition, sympathetic consciousness of people's distress, almost everybody has some level of that. And they, it's kind of, you know, like I feel sorry for somebody that's really hurting. Uh, see the homeless on TV or you see, you know, a friend that's going through a hard time and you feel sorry for them. It's kind of like pity. You pity them. But compassion does not stop there. And the distinctive of compassion, it goes on to the second part of that definition, and that is a heartfelt desire to alleviate the distress of another person. The, the uh, literal root meaning of the word, both in Hebrew and Greek, of compassion in the Bible is it's rooted in the, the meaning for bowels, believe it or not, uh, guts. The lowest part of our being, of our soul, we feel compassion deeply. It's, it's, it's more of a character quality than emotion. So hang on to that definition as now having been instructed for three weeks and now hopefully hearing some encouraging stories, you, I want to cheer you on and challenge you as a church to be motivated when you leave here today that you're ready to stretch yourself in compassion. You're ready to get past the walls and all the fears and it takes some risks reaching out to people who are hurting. And along with that, and this will be the tagline on the whole thing, as you share with people what they need in terms of a listening ear or maybe a, a, a physical need being met or just a, 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 a service, an act of service to them, that you're ready also to verbalize your faith. You're ready, ready to tell them why you do that. That's uniquely Christian for Christ followers. Well, let me, let me dive in on my story. I landed on the planet in a, 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 a town born in a small town in western Iowa on a farm. Uh, I, uh, my dad was a farmer. Um, my grandfather was a farm equipment dealer. He, was, he, he sold John Deere farm equipment. Does anybody know John Deere? Okay, yeah, look at that. Uh, you are, are more toward the country here, so you, you in fact, you know, I, something in me just kind of moved when I turned off the road, off uh, the road here, and, and there's plowed fields around, you know, you just take it in, or anybody like farm people like that? that? That was me. I was born in what I thought was heaven, and it wasn't Field of Dreams. I mean, that was Iowa. And, and I thought I would always stay there. My uh, uh, family was uh, kind of, I mean, idyllic. Childhood was just, everything was going except one thing. My dad, every, every once in a while, had to go with my mom to the hospital. I didn't know what that was about. They never told me. Until one day, eight years old, my mom came home by herself. And I'll never forget that meeting in my grandmother's den uh, with my sister and my mom, my mom saying words that shocked me because I had no idea this was a possibility. Your dad isn't coming home again ever. He had died from cancer. had been sick and uh, passed away. And, you know, you might think in a kind of a compassionate way that as a kid I was really sad, right? Like the loss was crushing, and it was in a way, but even more so, you know what I felt inside? Terror. Fear. Uh, my, and maybe some of you relate to this if you've lost a parent like that. My biggest question was, how in the world am I going to grow up without a dad? Well, you know, uh, life did go on, and uh, I wasn't sure it was for a while, but it went on. And, and again, it was really in many ways very good. As a matter of fact, 
I had grandfathers, both grandfathers living. I had uncles. I had coaches. I had mentors. Small town. We all looked after each other. We took care of each other in many ways. However, every five years, I'd have a loss. One grandfather died five years after my dad. And by the time I was 18, the second grandfather had passed. So losing men, losing dads was kind of a theme for me. Well, as I got to college and went into college, I went ahead, I was going ahead pursuing my dream uh, vocation, and that was, of course, an engineer designing farm equipment at Iowa State University. And, uh, and I, I was kind of on track for that. To my last year in college, I came back for my last year in college, and I uh, was in a fraternity. So we had one of those back-to-school uh, parties out in the woods. Uh, and uh, we, the, I had a, invited a girl that I didn't meet many of them in classes because I was an engineer. So I'd met this one the spring before. Didn't know much about her except that she was sort of religious. And we got out to the party, and the beer was flowing, the music was playing, and people were even kind of falling. I laid down our blanket, and the icebreaker question to my date, my religious date, was, so what are these Bible studies you go to about? And uh, she was real shy, actually, but she opened her mouth, and the first thing she said was, well, since Jesus was God, now in all this upbringing in this small town, I had grown up in a church, but I... that." Something happened, and it struck me, and I said, I just stopped her right there. I, I think I literally went like this, time out. Jesus was man. He wasn't God. He's son of God, maybe, but not God. No, no, no. She, said, she was just a matter of fact. Yeah, just read it for yourself. Get in the Bible and read it for yourself. And, and then, then she followed that up with, and because you can only have a relationship with God through him by faith alone, only that, it was like, time out again. I've been in church for 22 years, and I've never heard this. You're wrong, basically, is what I said. We talked for four hours in that middle of that party about that only topic. And uh, sure enough, God had a plan. He's getting a hold of my heart. And I started reading the Bible. Well, I literally stumbled into this text that I want to read now, and, and uh, you can follow along with me in the Psalms. Not often one thought of as being kind of a conversion text, but think of it in terms of my uh, story, my journey so far. God speaking, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Is God in, holy, in his holy dwelling? Think of it, a father to the fatherless. For somebody like me who lost my dad and two grandfathers and was kind of still not even sure how that could have happened and, and how to work through that. God's saying I'm your father. In fact, right away I said, that's true. I, I wasn't sure I was going to grow up. I've grown up, and God is the reason I grew up. Um, father to the fatherless, a defender of widows my mom was taken care of as a single mom, is, is God. It's who he is. And then this next line was just like frosting on the cake. God sets the lonely in families. I, was, I went through all this before divorce. I didn't even know what divorce was. Every friend I had had a dad. I was the only one without one, and I felt lonely a lot growing up. And it was like God took me and set me in families. He made up the difference, and I didn't really even know him. More than, more than almost any passage, this passage led me to believe, you know, this is all true, and, 
And uh, one night, about a month after that date, I just, I just said, Jesus, if you are the one who this book says you are, then I want you in my life. That was my prayer to become a Christian. And by the way, there may be some here who just never really understood any of that. Even today, right here in this room. And maybe today God will help you see that there was some loss, there's some pain, there's some bad thing in your life that brought you to this point, and God has it covered. He has had it covered. And Jesus is one who has looked on the distress of your sin and the sin that you've committed and others have committed against you, and he, he has had a sympathetic consciousness of it. Compassion. And a desire to alleviate it by going to the cross and through resurrection proving that he is your way to God. That's what happened to me. To, to be able to receive uh, compassion as a gift, to be able to receive it as a gift is the beginning of being able to ever give it. The first thing you have to do is receive compassion as a gift. From God and from others. Uh, within a church as friendly and, and, and as uh, solid as this one, whatever your need is, coming for prayer, but also going out the door to be able to share it with others and receive compassion as a gift, uh, as I had opportunity to do early in life, is the setup to be able to give it. You know, some people struggle with that. They're like, I don't deserve it. And that's right, we don't deserve it. But you know what? Every person is worth it. There's a difference. You don't deserve it, but you're worth it. God created you in His image, and it is His desire to rescue you from whatever it is you're going through on earth and for eternity. So receive compassion as a gift. You know, I, I don't know if you um, are starting to think about your own story, but... You have one. You have a compassion story. Do you know what it is? Do you know what you, God has or is rescuing you from and other people using other people to do it? Again, be open to that and, and try to, to hear how he's wanting to use compassion in your life so he can use it with others. Well, after college, I moved off, uh, off away from the college town and, uh, uh, that I was in, and I went to my first job. And it was my dream job, of course, designing farm equipment for John Deere. But it was a new town. And I was alone, and I slipped into uh, a, a depression. I'm not sure I really ever understood why. But it, it just had to do with a lot of change. And I became, actually, I think, severely depressed. Looking back on it, it was so intense for about a year that I'll never forget it. In fact... I will say from that experience for a year right out of college of just deep depression, I was so depressed I hurt all over physically. I remember putting my fingers together and it hurt to do that for a year. That I will never, ever uh, look down on anybody that's depressed. I know that just because I went through that experience. It was a battle to just do life at all. And then, sure enough, it true to form, uh, I literally stumbled, bumped into a, a great church in Des Moines, Iowa, where I was uh, working for John Deere, and uh, everything changed rather quickly. I was pulled out of that depression through relationships, through the church, through being a part of a family. And 
in finding this church, I was single and not married, and so I, I kind of gravitated toward lots of other singles. And what, what happened then was really unusual. I, I had been from an intact family, and my extended family was pretty much intact. But I, I was meeting a lot of singles who were single because they were divorced. They had even gotten married young, and they divorced young. And I, in fact, actually started dating a, a woman and had a strong fondness for her. And that really triggered, what in the world does God think about divorce? So I got my Bible open. I looked up in the concordance, all the references to marriage and divorce, and got thoroughly confused. Anybody ever done that? Like really tried to study this topic biblically? It's not that easy. And, and I muddled my way through that whole season. But in that process of that, I was so gripped at a deep level about what God might want to do that at one point I... I maybe off the cuff prayed uh, because divorce rates were going through the roof and so many people were going through this, and we all know that story. I prayed, uh, God, if you can ever use me, simple prayer, if you can ever use me to make a difference in this area, I'm open. That, that, was, that was just my sum total of my prayer. Be careful what you pray for. You know, I, I, I was like, at many times I've said, what a stupid. Why did I do that? Because it was not easy after that. But it's remarkable, actually. So the next thing I knew, I, I had several years with my, my career and doing the last thing I ever thought I would do. I, I, I just need more training. I, I need to figure this out. I mean, I can always go back to designing farm equipment. I, I, I'm going to go to seminary. And I went there. I was actually there around when Dan was and, and uh, at Trinity over in Deerfield. Just even going from Iowa to Chicago was was uh, just a huge risk for a guy that was pretty rooted where I was born. And and uh, I, a, another thing, I, another way I prayed in that time, and as I actually found this church, the first week I was at seminary, I found Willow Creek. I heard about it. I thought I'd check it out. And I was sort of blown away by what God was doing there. And it, it, there might be people here who don't know about Willow Church, Willow Creek Community Church is a little tiny church down the road here. That that, uh, uh, but how many been there or know about it? You know, if you don't, it is just a remarkable, remarkable place where God uh, did another unusual thing and just took a very unlikely group of people and built this huge church. And and I went there and I was so taken by what God might want to do there, even for broken families and marriages. I just prayed another. One of those little prayers, I said, God, you know, I, I'm open. I think you've been leading. Um, this is another clue if you're, you're looking for a, a direction. God, I will knock on doors and uh, consider, you know, like if you want to open doors for where I can be used, but uh, I'm not getting any pry bars out. I'm, a, I'm an engineer, so I'm not going to get the pry bar out and pry the door open. I'm just not going, you've got to open the door, then I promise I'll walk through it. Recommended prayer if you're wondering about God's leading. Just, God, you open it, I'll walk through, no pry bars. Okay? I did that, and, the, and the, I met the director of the counseling center at Willow at the time and uh, got to know him a little bit, and he said, well, where are you from anyway? And I said, well, I told him, and he said, what church do you go to? And I told him, and he says, my wife grew up in that church that you were from. That's the church I always wanted to minister to in until I found Willow Creek and the door flew open. To talk about the door flying open. He and I started a, 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 a group meeting there. Uh, 
in fact, I, this kind of came out of, again, a conversation with him where I, all these people were coming into this church, and I, and I said, you know, there must be a lot of marriage breakdown and family problems, all that, and you're the director of the counseling center. How are you dealing with it? And he said, one person at a time in my office. I wanted to say, is it working for you? And it wasn't. So I said, why don't we put them in a room all at the same time and tell them this, the whole, everybody at once rather than one person at a time? He said, okay, let's try that. We had 26 people in May of 1986 in the thing we called the Marriage and Divorce Workshop. Isn't that a weird name? The whole, the whole thing was you may be married and struggling with that and not sure you're going to stay married, or you may be divorced and not sure that what that was about. So we basically did divorce recovery and marriage restoration out of the same workshop because then that let people decide which way they were going to go. And uh, we would teach, and the teaching was really bad, but we still we would teach, and then we'd put them in small groups according to, uh, is it divorce recovery? Are you a single parent? Do you want to try to work on your marriage as a couple? Are you an individual here working on your marriage? I'm an engineer, remember? And I was even using a computer there so that when God brought the blessing, I could keep it organized. We had 26 people in 1986. In 1990, we had about 500 in about 50-some small groups coming uh, 30-some weeks a year just going through this curriculum that we wrote. It was amazing. And, um, you know, one of the really weird things that happened then, so just to never count God out of anything, I was so busy with all this, I was still single. So I'll never forget one meeting, and I don't know what I was teaching on. It was a relatively small group early on. A guy in the back raised his hand, and whatever I was teaching on, he said, uh, excuse me, but what you're teaching about there, how does that work out in your marriage? And I said, well, I, it, it doesn't because I'm not married. And he, oh, okay, okay. He said, like, when you were married, he assumed that I was up here because I had been through it. When you were married, how did it work out? And I said, well, it, it, it doesn't because I had never been married. And I'll, I'll never forget that he, he about came out of his chair. He, he was like, you what? He says, you're trying to teach us and tell us what to do, and you've never been through it yourself? And I, and I, I just like said a 911 prayer, and, and, then, and then God he said, grab the book. And so I did, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you all a deal. I said, I'll, I'll do my best to teach this, what it says about your situation. You go back out and uh, try it, try it out, and come back and tell me how it works. And they're like, oh, okay, that, that's a good deal. I mean, where else were they going to go? We were, we were kind of the only ones really offering people this kind of guidance and instruction. You know, one of the things I learned about in, in that situation, that whole circumstance, and this is to keep in mind, wherever you think God might be calling you, especially in areas of compassion and risky, messy kind of ministry, keep in mind that it will make a lot of sense where God calls you. I was an engineer. The church needed an engineer to kind of design new ministries and kind of figure this stuff out. That made sense. But it will always, God's call, almost always, I think always, really, will have some element of it, some phase of it, that does not make sense humanly. It's like, I haven't been married, so, so don't go there. Well, I hear this from people all the time. I'm not going to follow God because... And, and the reason it's so important that you consider going anyway is because if you wait till it all makes sense, uh, it'll, you'll be the one doing it by yourself. God always has to show himself strong through the unlikely, the thing that doesn't make sense. And uh, 
especially in, an, in areas like compassion ministry like this. Well, that, that was, uh, that was uh, did not make sense about that part. Uh, uh, we, we actually built those ministries and added a lot of ministries, and uh, God just kept blessing it. But I was an engineer and had to keep moving on into new areas. And so um, what happened is we really developed compassion ministries inside the church. And uh, what we needed to do is look at how we would do a better job with all these people, especially ones that have been healed and, and were becoming leaders of compassion ministries, how they could be utilized outside the church. And in the mid-90s, God brought some uh, people, and especially one particular guy who is African-American, different skin color than all of us, tall. He looked like Scotty Pippen's brother. I mean, he was a basketball player. He, he was a spitting image of Scotty Pippen, so you kind of know what he looks like. His name was unique to Alvin Bibbs. And uh, he grew up in Cabrini Green, youngest of five people. Uh, if you know anything about Cabrini, he was having to, uh, like, be careful getting to school and back to, keep, to stay safe. And that was his upbringing, and God had grabbed his heart, and he brought him to Willow Creek. And that opened the door for us to really start going out into all kinds of other cultures and cross-ethnic uh, and cross-racial lines and, and, and to do a work with him as a leader and a lot of us working around him uh, of extending compassion outside of Willow Creek. About mid-90s, we started doing that. We had just a few hundred serving outside before we started this. By the time we were done, eight, year, or ten, yeah, eight years that I was in it, most of us were in it, leading that part, we were in the tens of thousands of people serving outside the church. And, and that really brought us to a point where we realized and we believed, and we're reading our, continuing to read the Scriptures, that not only did we need to receive compassion as a gift, as a people, as a church, we needed to practice compassion as a lifestyle. You receive compassion as a gift individually, as a body of, of a church. You also would need to practice it as a lifestyle. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the passages that I think best weaves this together is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. Uh, follow along with me as I just read and talk through this passage. The Apostle Paul is... Uh, talking to the Corinthians, a church that had a lot of messiness in it and God was doing a lot of compassionate work in it. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Stop right there. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that he's the God of all comfort? Every bit of comfort that anybody can get comes from God. And by the way, he gives that comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see how this works? God was my father. He became my father. I got in touch with that so that I could bring father-like comfort and ministry to other people, to broken people. And notice it says any affliction. Could be little affliction. Could be little difficulties. It could be huge ones. There isn't anything too big for God or his people to encounter. Verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, and that will happen, we'll continue to be afflicted and have problems. It is for your comfort and salvation. And salvation. You see that? 
See, all of our problems, all of our difficulties on earth are to get us to look up, to look to God. That's God's underlying plan on, you say, why is this happening to me? It's to look up. Why does God let it happen? To look up. There's a lot of people out there that don't know anything about God and they're wondering why it has happened. They need somebody to come along and say, so that you can look up. And here, I, I can show you who, who, to, who to come to God through. It's through Jesus. That's the salvation part in this passage. Verse 7, our hope is for, for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You see, Paul just keeps weaving that that affliction, suffering, comfort, ourselves, others, all together. You know, I don't think I don't think even with churches like Willow and Harvest and other and, and this one, I don't think the world has really seen a whole church practice compassion and community and do it as a lifestyle so that those who surround the church will be so curious, they'll be watching you so closely, they'll be so blown away by your risk-taking and compassion that they'll want to know and take note and wonder at how in the world you do it. So that the stage is set, it's because of Jesus. That's why. This is the next great opportunity to share the good news with people. Well, in that extension era where we were... um, uh, crossing cultural lines. Let me just read to you. We had what we called compassion areas. We went into the Bible, really looked at all the different areas that God really called us to, and and then we put it in a more contemporary framework so that we could guide and steer the church there. Listen to this list. of We had serving teams and people going out, organizations we were partnering with, at-risk youth, youth out there who are just getting beat up by the culture and pushed into gangs, especially when they were in poverty and broken families. Care for the unborn. That's what we called our area to deal with abortion. And don't get me started. We've got a long way to go there to make a difference. And especially for the moms who are so alone and, 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 and feel like that's their only alternative. Effective ministries of compassion to, to rescue, rescue children. Jails and Prisons, jail and prison ministry, went to Illinois Youth Center in St. Charles with teams of young adults because in the youth centers were teenagers who had committed very serious crimes. And, uh, and, and you know, that could be a place where a lot of people were intimidated to go in. You know, like, not every, it's probably not for everybody, but it's for a lot more people than are going in there. Physically and developmentally challenged who are in their own prisons and their bodies, you know, the... the the refugees and immigrants, that, that kind of like the sailors coming out here, are like aliens and they're strangers in the land. You invite them in. Senior citizen homes, we, we wanted to send teams in there because do you know that uh, once in a nursing home for an elderly person, and by the way, there is an age wave coming here where the, those homes are going to be pretty overwhelmed, um, the, the, uh, the average time there is a year and a half. year and a half once in. And where after that? Well, it's not the next home other than the one in heaven. Are we in there? Can we be in there showing them the way? Um, sick and chronically ill, that's a constant theme across the whole culture, the need to uh, heal the sick. And, and transitional housing is kind of people who are needing their own homes and could be able to afford it if they got a little help. And Habitat for Humanity, if you, most people have heard of that, 
was our great partner ministry there. Well, <clears throat> there's a couple other areas. And all, all these areas, I, I have just loads of only God, what I call only God stories. It's one of the great things about working in compassion. I will tell you, you don't need to go to the movies anymore. You don't need to watch TV anymore. And by the way, when you do that, you're, you're just separating yourself from all, all those shows and all those movies that present all those crises out in the world that the story is there for somebody else to live. No, in compassion, we get to live the story. I really don't watch movies or TV much anymore because my life is like that. But one of them, one of my favorite ones is uh, early on in the extension ministry, uh, we kind of put the word out at Willow, so like, anybody want to kind of rally and do something in the area of compassion, kind of a general thing? And a group actually came to us and said, let's start a homeless shelter here. Well, if you've been to Willow, you, that, that picture doesn't connect right away. Uh, Million-dollar homes across the road, great big building in the middle of 110 acres, and a homeless person, you kind of think they're walking or on a bike and carrying bags, and how are they going to get there? Keep in mind, God doesn't, it doesn't always make sense. This team persevered, and sure enough, we became a pad site. If you've heard of pads, anybody heard of pads? We became a pad site there, one of the few of the many churches in that, that organization that would, was more Bible teaching and preaching, uh, more evangelical. And... Uh, one of the one of my favorite times in the pad, and it was a hard road that we 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 had to do a whole bunch of extra stuff to make it work. But it did work. Thirty to forty people a night, uh, three meals they would get. They'd have a place to sleep. They got laundry and they got uh, showers. They got lots of great stuff for them and and encouragement and love and relationship and friendship. One night I was in the. I was in the site, and I was the staff person overseeing, and a volunteer came up to me. That's a whole other thing. Working with volunteers and me sometimes is interesting. This volunteer came up to me, and he said, Do you know that we have people who aren't members, and they're supervisors, and we've got volunteers who aren't trained? And he was throwing all these problems at me. And I needed more compassion for him. But again, God grabbed a hold of me with a 911 prayer, and, 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 he, and I said to him, You know what? His name was Lee. I said, Lee, thanks for telling me. I'm concerned like you are too. And as a matter of fact, I think you're just the guy that could fix this. And he was like, really? His whole attitude changed. And he and his wife from then on took over that whole ministry. He has a printing company in Arlington Heights, and he eats, sleeps, and drinks pads. That's what he does for a year. To this day, I think, actually. He took it over. As a staff person, I probably... I probably, after he took over, maybe spent five hours a year on it. He was organizing 300 volunteers and meals being delivered at the right time and vans getting to the train station. He organized the whole thing just to give you a picture of what God can do. Another one, uh, another area was what we called bridging the racial divide, racial reconciliation. And Alvin, being who he is, uh, was able to make connections to bring us, make us more a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church. And uh, to do that, to really turbocharge that, we, we uh, got a bus and we uh, put half of the bus, about 40 people, 40 leaders from Willow Creek, all white, with another half of the bus filled with leaders from a church called Salem Baptist Church on the south side of Chicago. James Meeks is the pastor, if you know James Meeks, he's a Senator, and it, we, we call it the Black Willow on the south side. It's that big. It's the same size as Willow. 
And we got on a bus and we went eight days together on a bus on a civil rights tour of the South. If you could just imagine. All the, all the black folks were, uh, yep, yep, yep. And all the white folks were, whoa, you got to be kidding me. I had no idea. I was just clueless. Sorry. And there's, that's okay. That's okay. That was the whole week. And I, I, I was on one uh, part of the tour. They had videos and all kinds of stuff on the bus, documentary of the Birmingham church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, where four uh, little black girls died in the civil rights uh, era. And um, I was just touched by the video. The bus stops, the doors open, and there's that same church. And there was something about that combination that just broke me. I was a mess. And I had my new friend, a rather large African-American woman, sitting in the bus next to me. She walked out with me, and I just buried my head in her shoulder and soaked it with my tears. And I'll never forget it, and I've never been the same since. Do you see what God can do? Do you see what compassion does? Do you see how we can have our pain and, and struggle alleviated through Christ and in very unusual ways? Well, we receive compassion as a gift. We live it out and we practice it as a lifestyle. And now I want to bring you to this last point that is just right out of a text is very important to me, and that is we need to live out, once we get to a certain point of practice of compassion, we need to live out compassion as a kingdom-building cause for the purpose of kingdom-building. And for this, I go to the texts in the gospel that are not often preached on or talked about at all. I call them the sending out texts. Four times in the gospels, Jesus is recorded as sending out his disciples. It's the only time he does it. Specifically sending it out. You know, it gripped me at one point. I should probably really pay attention to how he does that. You know what he does? It's, it's actually charted in the, the passages in your notes, or they're going to be up here on the screen. He does two things. He says, go out and practice compassion and tell people about me. Two things. Compassion and evangelism. Go out and do these two things. The same person's doing both things. I think it's the power that we're missing in the church these days is that we kind of got, well, we got compassion serving over here and we got the evangelism group is over here. And, oh, by the way, if you know what about Jesus, uh, go over there. Or, uh, by the way, if you want to be served, go over there. And people are confused. And there isn't any reason we can't do both ourselves. Notice how Jesus gets his disciples uh, cranked up for it. Matthew 10, 7 through 8. And notice it's right in close proximity. One or two verses, uh, both are there. Heal the sick, Jesus says. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. By the way, think about that list. How are we doing healing the sick? Driving out demons? Anybody driven out any? Raised any dead lately? You know, it's, it, it's part of why we don't pay attention to this text. Jesus has given them authority to do it supernaturally, but he never says we can't do a lot of this naturally. We can be healing. We, we, we can help people who have modern-day lepers, AIDS. We can be friends to them. We can let the love of Christ heal them. We, we, we're still called to this. And then look at the next, right in that same text, and as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark 6, 12 through 13, the next one. They drove out many demons 
and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. What else did they do? They went out and preached that people should repent. See, the same people did that. His disciples did that together. The church exploded out of this. Luke 9, 2. He sent them out to heal the sick. There it is again. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. Need more? Uh, later on in that same passage. So they went out. So, so they set out and went from village to village. I love how it kind of did. They were going village to village, healing people everywhere. They did what he asked them to do. And so they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel. They did both. And in Luke 10, 9, this actually, he does this at a different time. He, this is 72 people. The others are 12, 72. He, he says, heal the sick who are there wherever you go and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. You know, I encourage you to read these texts more broadly. Go over them and just live them out. Be the disciples and imagine what it must have been like because Jesus, I think, is doing this for us today and saying, you can do this. You can go be compassionate. You can go share about me while you're being compassionate. And the sharing, by the way, is not just for the people you're compassionate with. It's for all the whole world watching you. Their friends, their relatives. What? They cared for my neighbor and they really helped them through their divorce. And so why did they do that? What church do they go to? That's how Jesus intended it to work. One of my favorite stories on this is in 1990. So back up to 1990 when I'm doing this rebuilders. We call it rebuilders for marriages and such. And a, and a couple came in to my office. I did pastoral counseling then. And I called them like Barbie and Ken. I mean, he was a basketball player again, like he was tall, good looking, and she was good looking, and they were a mess. They had been high school sweethearts, had gone to college separately, they kept in touch, then they got married, and they were in the first year of marriage, it all fell apart. It was horrible. And I, I don't know why I did this. I, I Just in the session, I said, you know what, uh, we can talk about this, with each, about your relationship with each other, I didn't know him at all, but I said, we can talk about your relationship with God. What do you want to do? I gave it to them, and they said, let's talk about God. So in about 20 minutes, I told them about the love of Christ. I told them, like, what Jesus did for them, and they did, kind of did the thing I did when earlier on. Where, like, we've been in church our whole life. We've never heard this. And they bowed at the end of that session, a one-hour session, and they personally both said, Jesus, come into our lives. And they left that session and never looked back. No counseling Nothing else. They just, like, healed. They got involved in the ministry. And before, about a, but about a month after that meeting, she called me. And I was like, how's it going? And she says, well, it's pretty good. But I have one concern, Jody Zappia said. She said, Ron has his nose in the Bible every free minute he has. And I'm like, oh, boy, this might be a problem. Like, is this a problem, I asked her. She says, not really. I said, let's go with it. Let's just see where this goes. And she kept cheering him on, and they stayed involved at Willow Creek until they kind of, they just struggled getting enough, Ron especially, feeding from the Bible there. And so I went to seminary with a guy by the name of James McDonald, who's starting Harvest Bible Chapel at the time, and I said, why don't you go over there? Check it out. See how that works for you. I was just kind of like trying to problem solve for him. And they did. That was, that was about 1992, and, and by... The year 2000, Ron had left his job and gone to seminary, and he was chosen to plant the first church out of the original church in Rolling Meadows, the second Harvest Bible Chapel, and it was uh, in Naperville. 
It, it is there now, anyway. And, and that was 2000, and, and they were saying then, and like by 2010, uh, let's say, well, just a little slogan, 10 by 2010. You know, let's do 10 churches. This is Harvest. And, uh, and this was the first one, and by 2010, there were 65 Harvest Bible chapels. In some way, and, and, and I'm working at the first one now. That's kind of where I ended up after leaving Willow. In some way, you know, it wasn't the whole reason, but one element of that was that one compassion evangelism meeting at Willow Creek in 1990 that God used to help get that movement started. Well, a few years ago, I was uh, at the end of a church service singing Amazing Grace, and I was probably even a little tuned out because Amazing Grace, you can do that too, even though you shouldn't tune out Amazing Grace. And uh, got to the third verse, and when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we all know this, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. And I thought, 10,000 years? I'm going to be somewhere 10,000 years from now. You all are going to be somewhere 10,000 years from now. And 7,000, and 5,000, and 3,000. See, that's just how I work. I know I'm a little weird. But that's, I couldn't, you know, how do you get your mind around that? And as I was going there, the Holy Spirit was whispering to me, and yeah, and yeah, you got a little sliver of time here. And there's a distinction in that time. Matter of fact, uh, if this was a, if this stage, the black part of this stage was a timeline, imagine that's a timeline, 10,000, I calculated, I'm an engineer, remember? That little red stripe there, if that's 10,000 years, that little red stripe is your life. And looking at some of you, it's maybe about half that much. And in that red stripe on your timeline, because you, it's your timeline, you're going to be somewhere in 10,000 years. That's the only time that you have to be compassionate toward people and to share the good news. And what do you mean? Well, any time outside of that red stripe, you have no need to share to be compassionate, at least the way I understand it, and comfort people because you won't they won't no tears, remember, no pain, no sadness in heaven. And you also not have to share Jesus because everybody there will know him. The only time we all get to do that is that little sliver of time right there. And that just gripped me. I'm going to give my life to those two causes for the sake of the church and for the sake of eternity, celebrating all that God does with it. So will you bow with me? And we'll pray to that end. Father, thank you so much for your love and your compassion for us. Thank you that you have um, given us... Uh, your son and, and uh, true compassion, always. We always have compassion for you. Just the ability to uh, uh, receive your grace and to receive your love and, and your, receive your alleviating from our suffering. And especially that for eternity, which we we're just reminded of. So, Lord, help each person here today. Apply it personally. Help them decide to. No, or they're just going to take the next step to stretch themselves in sharing the compassion of Christ with others and help them also to know and really believe that they can open their mouths and share Christ's love and share who he is and what he means for them and do it in his name. We pray thou. Amen.